Hey guys, this is the C3 Church Malmo podcast. I am believing God will speak to you today and that a greater level of faith will be unlocked in your life. For more information about C3 Church, go to c3malmo.se. God bless. I already feel ministered to, definitely. God's spirit and his presence is here this morning. And I just want to remind you, if you will stay plugged in to him, you will still feel that presence and spirit throughout your week. Isn't that wonderful? You don't have to wait till one of these uh, Sunday gatherings to access that. Good morning to those of you who are now joining us online. It's so good to be with you as well, even though I can't see you. It's been a while since I've been up here. Uh, I'm often otherwise with my little toddler, and I can see all the backs of your heads. But it's nice to see your faces from this angle. My, my name is Ladea Rylander. If you uh, don't know, it actually is still, even if you do know, Ladea Rylander is my name, no matter what. My husband and I lead a connect group here, and sometimes I'm asked, I'm given the absolute privilege and honor to bring the word and speak to you. I've said before, you know, the best way to learn something is to teach it, and so I'm, I'm the blessed one always in this position And that was true for me this week while I was preparing. I was 100% freshly stirred this week, and that's been my prayer for you as well. So as Justin mentioned, reminded us, we're in our Together series, uh, looking at some of the fundamentals of our faith in the context of community. And of course, Christianity is both individual and communal. You can't have one side without the other. There we go. Okay, better? No earrings interfering. Okay. Christianity is both individual and communal. You cannot have one side without the other. And it's in that vein that I'm speaking to you this morning, together reaching people. That's the topic this morning. So several weeks ago, uh, this was July, my, my mom was visiting from the US, and my family and I were walking around central Malmö as we do. So we're crossing one of the big squares, and we see, we see a man and a woman. And the man is speaking very passionately to this woman. Uh, she's just listening. Um, I can't really get a read on how she's responding, but he's, he's kind of leaning over, he's leaning in. And then I see he's got a Bible in one hand. He's got a, and so I'm like, okay, I have kind of an idea now of what's going on in this scenario. Um, and he, that's awesome. He feels compelled to do that on the square. I, I have never felt compelled to talk to someone like that on the square, cold call evangelism. But as we're walking past, I kind of say a prayer for the whole situation. And, you know, my family and I keep on going. And then out of nowhere, I don't know where this second man came from, but a second man, he comes like flying in. He does a spin, whoosh. He kind of catches my eye, and he says, Jesus loves you, and then he keeps walking. Same, um, and then we walk in opposite directions. I thought, wow, what just happened there? And my family and I, of course, strongly believe, we agree with this statement, yes, Jesus loves us. We know that, so we're quick to kind of go, yes, hey, amen, woohoo, high five, like, we don't know what to do exactly. Like, you know, we're, we're in on that. And then 
And then that's, that's that. We walk away and, and then continue doing what they're doing. The thing about this encounter, I think some of us, when we hear the word reaching people, this is the image that we get in our minds. Okay, I got to go stand out on the square and maybe print some flyers and hand them out. And again, if you're compelled to do that, go for it. I've never been compelled to do that. And so I'm not going to say at the end of my message that we all need to pair up and decide who's going to have the Bible and who's going to be like the swirling drive-by love bomb person. We don't have to do that. Maybe, maybe some of you are disappointed. Matthew, you look kind of interested in that. Um, but if you're like me, you, you, you encounter this and you feel a bit nervous, kind of like, oh, I get kind of a nervous feeling in my stomach. I don't really want to do that. <laughs> and that's okay. Okay, we're going to talk about some other ways, what, what, what it might mean to reach people. Um, but I'll, I want to highlight that tension for us. What is, what is part of that nervous feeling some of us get in our stomachs? The Barna Research Group, who look at faith and culture, um, at kind of the intersection of faith and culture, came out with some research, I think it was a couple years ago, and they surveyed millennial Christians. These are, you know, real deal, very committed Christians. A millennial, if you're not familiar, the oldest millennials are turning 40 soon. Justin, Matthew, Adam. I think the correct term is geriatric millennial. Yeah, you're welcome for that one. Geriatric millennial. So that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the people about to turn 40 to about 25-year-olds. That's millennial Christians. And this survey found out that 94% of millennial Christians agreed the best thing that could ever happen as a result of a spiritual conversation would be that the non-believer comes to know Jesus. Yeah, awesome. That's the best thing that could ever happen. Someone would come to know Jesus. But get this, of that same group, 47%, so about half, believed that sharing their faith with someone was wrong. Did you catch that? That's a kind of a contradiction. So many people are walking around with this idea, this authentic relationship with Jesus, and they believe that the best thing that could ever happen to someone is that they would come to know Jesus, but they also believe that it's wrong to share their faith. What's going on there? This is a picture of a tension, of a disconnect. Okay, I got to get rid of this thing. This is not working for me. Here we go. Thank you. <laughs> it's a picture of a disconnect uh, where we, we think like absolutists. We believe that we have truth and that that truth is relevant for everyone, but we live like a relativist, like it's true for me, it's kind of wrong to encroach on somebody else's space. Now, there are many factors, both cultural and individual, that are playing into this tension. Could be that perhaps we have individualized or, or in internalized the idea that evangelism, and that might be a word that makes you nervous, We'll, we'll get there in a minute. But evangelism is today's greatest cultural taboo. Do you know that? In a time where the self is higher than everything else, and what's true for you is cool as long as you don't think it needs to be true for me too, because then you're infringing on the right to be myself. And not only that, if the truth you have is Christian, I definitely don't want that because Christianity is oppressive and part of the problem. 
Like that's the, that's the, the feeling swirling around our culture. And I wonder if this disconnect that this research put, the, put their finger on is partly because we've kind of internalized that in some way. I don't have time to dive into a more thorough analysis of kind of this cultural moment, but it is true that it is exceptionally difficult to share Jesus in the West today. That's not a figment of your imagination. It's exceptionally difficult in a city like Malmö. The thing is, I want to remind us today that the heart of God has not changed. It is and always will be to reconcile the lost to himself to bring people who are far away from him close. And the further away we get from that mission of God, the further away we get from his heart. It's this heart that Jesus expresses in Luke 15, you know, that um, very popular, well-known parable of the shepherd and the sheep. The shepherd has his 99, the flock. They've got each other. They're safe with each other. And Jesus says, that's great, and he's looking for the one, right? That's the heart of God. The family isn't complete without the one. Or maybe I can convince you with Luke 19.10. This is Jesus, the week leading up to his crucifixion, the final week of his ministry. He sums up his entire mission is this, Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Or I could also remind you, when the religious leaders of Jesus' day are questioning his eating and drinking habits, like, ugh, you're associating too much with sinners and outsiders, he says in Luke 5, 31 and 32, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The heart of God is to bring people close to remove the barriers between him and us. And we, we who are the found ones, we can never lose sight of God's priorities, his heart. This, despite the temptation to focus only on what God can do for me, right? That's the temptation in a culture like ours. Okay, it's just like I got to white knuckle it. If I can get through living in Manwa and still have my faith intact, woohoo. Some of us think that way, and we're like, okay, uh, and what can God do for me? How can God help me get through the hell that is Malmö? This idea that, oh, I've got my God, and I've got my group. We're an awesome community, and that's good. This, this perspective is comfortable, but it doesn't have a whole lot in common with what Jesus taught. It's a comfortable, counterfeit version of Christianity. It's private. It's not offensive, and it's powerless. Perhaps you feel a bit stuck in your walk with Jesus. You're like, ah, it's kind of the same from day to day. And I go to, I've got the routines, and it's good. There is something so revitalizing about getting our eyes off of ourselves and seeing who is out there waiting for an invitation and then actually extending it and walking with someone through that process. If you're feeling stuck, I challenge you, open your eyes and extend an invitation. See if you start to feel unstuck. As Leslie New began, he was a missionary in the last century. Um, He was a missionary for a while in India, and he returned to Britain 
And on his return, he just got such a heart for the post-Christian West, and he wrote at length about mission in a culture like ours. He writes, the deepest motive for mission is simply the desire to be with Jesus where he is, on the frontier between the reign of God and the usurped dominion of the devil. The deepest motive for mission is simply the desire to be with Jesus where he is. You see, we will never be as close to God as we want to be unless we join him on this one. I cannot completely individualize my healing, my wholeness, and my purpose. That is all wrapped up in this community and in this community extending invitations to other people to join in. My wholeness will never be complete if I never extend an invitation. So what does this look like? I gave you one picture when I opened this sermon. It could look like a, Jesus loves you. <laughs> I don't know if that, I didn't actually feel invited so much. Just more of a, like a, yeah, cool. But look at John 1, okay? Turn me to John chapter 1, verses 45 and 46. Jesus is gathering his core group of disciples here. And Philip has just heeded the call to follow me. And Philip goes immediately to Nathaniel. He goes to find Nathaniel. Look at verse 45 there. Philip found Nathaniel and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Philip's response, or excuse me, verse 46, Nathaniel says, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Ugh. What does Philip say? He doesn't get in an argument. He just says, come and see. That's the invitation. Come and see. What is exactly the substance of this invitation, though? We can, we can think about this a bit further. Come and see what? It doesn't tell us. That verse doesn't keep going. But, but we can work this out, right? You know, many people have all kinds of ideas already and understandings about what they think Jesus has to offer, right? Um, some people think we mean come and see some moral advice or some advice for ordering your life and your marriage and your other relationships and your finances. Come and see. It's not that Christians don't have that. It's just that's not the core of what we have. It's a bit of a caricature to present the gospel like that because after all, that's good advice. That's not good news. Some people think what we mean when we say come and see is come and see a really good retirement plan for after death. Okay? It's much better than the alternative. We have got it. A really good retirement plan. Sign, sign up right here. Repeat this line and sign up. Mm. The problem with this distortion of Jesus' message, as Anglican theologian N.T. Wright puts it, is that when Jesus spoke about heaven, he didn't speak about it like that. That's not actually what Jesus said. He didn't say, heaven is a place where you can fly away to when you die. But he said, it is something that will become reality on earth, on earth as it is in heaven. So instead of arguing, uh, instead of Jesus arguing that we can escape earth to go to heaven, or saying that the morally good people, they're going to go to a happy place as a reward, the good news was that the reality of heaven is coming to earth. And it started with Jesus. 
So how about this one? This one's a bit more cynical. And I know you probably know some people who have this idea of what our invitation is. They may think we mean, come and see. Come and see some manipulation tactics to get your time and money. This one is perhaps a reaction to some of the very real abuses in church history and even today. Perhaps that person has been hurt in the past or knows someone who has been hurt. But the abuse of the thing doesn't cancel out the thing, right? We would never say that because some men abuse their partners, no woman should ever be in a relationship with a man, right? The problem is the abuse, not the concept of a relationship. I'm sure you can fill in some of the other misunderstandings. Maybe you've had a misunderstanding before about what the gospel is, or I'm sure you've had some conversations. And part of our job is to help people untangle some of these things, you know, clarify what is true and what is not true. Because I think sometimes what people are rejecting is not the real thing. It's a counterfeit version. And one of the most loving things that we can do is give people a chance to encounter the message of Jesus as it really is. Let them give an honest yes or no. That's one of the most loving things we can do. So come and see. Come and see what it looks like to live out God's story. God created the world and everything in it out of the overflow of his love the loving union between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. None of this would be here if it weren't for the love of God. Humans are created in his image to partner with him as we rule, we create, we produce families, we work, we take care of the earth, and all of that in loving relationship with God and others. That's what you were created for. And, you know, God wasn't interested in robots or inauthentic love, so he gave us free will. Do you know, without free will, you cannot know what true love is. True love doesn't exist without free will. But humans use that free will to reject God, and they said no to his offer of partnership and intimacy. The results, as you know, were devastating. Humans hurt ourselves and each other, create systems of sin, the roots of which can be traced back to the seeds of darkness in our own heart. And yet, God, rather than write us off, was and is so desperate to be in relationship with us, he had a rescue plan to save us from ourselves, to restore creation to wholeness, to restore us to our true home and to our true purpose, which is to be together with him and each other. The plan, it's so amazing here, though. This is... I mean, all of that makes Christianity quite a bit different from all the other stories out there in the world. But the crux of it, what makes it so fantastically different from any other philosophy or any other religion, is that Jesus came not offering a step-by-step plan that would be the solution. He said, I am the solution. God became the solution. And Jesus extends the invitation to step into that story. That's God's story to be with him. Come and see. So we join Jesus in announcing the good news as he does in Mark 1. So in case, in case you're still not convinced and you think the good news really is that you go to heaven when you die, turn to Mark 1, verse 14 and 15. You'll see there, after John was put in prison, 
Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. Okay, heads up, verse 15, we're going to read what Jesus thinks the good news is. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God has come near. This whole process of earth and heaven colliding has started. It started 2,000 some odd years ago with an event that really happened. Come and see the kingdom, the journey that is walking with Jesus as a citizen of heaven, tasting glimpses of life as it was meant to be, while yet still waiting for its fullest reality. That's what we're doing here. I got to quote Newbegin again. Like I said, he's just got such good stuff on mission in a culture like ours. He says, how can this strange story of God-made flesh, of a crucified Savior, of resurrection and new creation become credible for those whose entire mental training has conditioned them to believe that the real world is the world which can be satisfactorily explained and managed without the hypothesis of God? How can this happen? It just seems, those worlds seem so far apart. He says, I know of only one clue to answering that question. Only one real hermeneutic or explanation of the gospel. A congregation who believes it. Reaching people together. We cannot separate the good news from living it out, and we cannot live it out alone. It's together, centered not around common interest, it's not, we're not gathering around good advice or a fun time, but around Jesus. And it's only when we do that that we, we begin to unfold what it means to be in God's story. Church, the litmus test of whether or not we believe that is not merely what we confess in these walls or in each other's homes as we gather, although that is a wonderful start. It's also whether or not we experience such a transformation of our identities that it shows in our action. Importantly, whether or not we invite people to join us in God's story. And if we're not doing that, then do we really believe? And if we don't really believe, then what are we doing? Karaoke and brunch. Yeah. The temptation in a secular post-Christian society like ours is to hunker down, huddle together, compartmentalize our faith. We engage on Sunday, maybe, some, maybe in private, but never say a word about it otherwise. When someone, your coworker asks you at work, what'd you do this weekend? You somehow always leave out that you were engaged in church. That's the, by the way, that's the easiest way to painlessly let someone know you're a Christian. Hey, what'd you do this weekend? Oh, we had a family thing. We went out to Esterland. We had a, an awesome church gathering. And then we went to this awesome place for lunch. Just drop it in there. They're going to be like, ding, 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 church, church. <laughs> but that's like, you don't have to say anything else about it. Just drop it in there. Yeah, how many times do we just edit that part out because we're afraid of how they're going to react? Sometimes we resign ourselves to the fact that our friends, our coworkers, our family who aren't Jesus followers, well, they're just not interested, they're not going to understand, so I'm not going to speak to them about it. There are too many barriers between us and them to have any kind of spiritual conversation. And look, sometimes that is the case, right? Like the other day, Adam, um, this was after Sunday, after we had had Connect 
Sunday last week. He went out to see one of his friends and his daughter. This is a, a buddy from way back when, Adam's, you know, pre-Jesus days. <clears throat> so they went out and met up at the playground. And he asked this question, hey, what have you been up to this weekend? Adam said, oh, you know, we had this connect thing with our, our church folks. I was awesome, yeah. And this friend goes, whoa, whoa, man, hey, don't start preaching to me. <laughs> Not like Adam was going to start preaching to him. He was just like, that's what I did. Don't start preaching to me. <clears throat> what do you do in that situation? Well, you don't preach to them. <laughs> Hello. Don't talk about it anymore. Respect them and ask what he's been up to and then be a normal friend. That's what you do in that situation. Don't get all weird. Some of us are in danger, though, of writing off your average Swede like this friend is too far away. You know, we know the statistics that Swedes are, in general, the most agnostic people in the entire world. And yet, did you know this? That within Europe, they're considered the most spiritual. What does that mean? They mean that they believe in something out there. In Europe, they're the most spiritual. This was fascinating when I saw this research. It means that they aren't totally numb to their longings. They're just more likely to take it to nature. Most Swedes would sign off on the statement, nature is my church. Fascinating. We can't write them off, friends especially if we take Jesus seriously. Check this out. Look at Jesus passing through Samaria in John 4. You can turn there. Samaria was a place that the people Jesus was with had definitely written off. They had some, according to the Jews, some very strange religious beliefs. They worshipped God, but not at the temple. Uh, they read the Torah, the first five books of your Bible, but not any other part of the Old Testament. They had some different ideas about God. And the Hebrew people just thought they were weird as get. Jesus, God, would definitely not have anything to say to these people. They had written them off. But Jesus, right, he's passing through Samaria. Maybe you're familiar with this story in John 4 of Jesus and the woman at the well. This is such a gem of a story, and we're just going to scratch the surface here a little bit, but I encourage you to dwell on it a bit this week. It is rich with beauty and insight. Notice there at the beginning of this story in John 4, it tells us that we are in an area near Jacob's well. Many of you would read that in the story and skip over that. I don't know, that, that's a weird detail, Jacob's well. But your head, your mind should be going, ding, 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 Jacob's well, what's that? Well, that's a well from the Old Testament. Start thinking about what has happened at wells in the Old Testament. And you will find a pattern of marriages. Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Rachel, Moses and Zipporah, they meet at a well. And so John is plugging into this pattern by having Jesus and this woman meet at a well. It's like the boy meets girl story. Boy meets girl. Maybe for us it would be boy meets girl at a bar or, you know, whatever. This is boy meets girl at a well, okay? It's a thing. Boy meets girl, but this time it's Jesus meets unnamed Samaritan woman. So this makes it already more scandalous. I mean, there are so many barriers between Jesus and this woman, okay? She's a woman. She's from Samaria. She's, he's a Jew. Um, he shouldn't even be talking to her, definitely not asking her for anything. And John turns that up a notch by writing it in this pattern, saying there might 
be a marriage proposal here because that's what's happened in all these other well stories. So we're like, what? What is Jesus doing when we start reading this? So check it out, verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? He was thirsty after all. Can you, can you imagine that? Someone at a bar, the dude goes up to the girl and is like, hey, can you buy me a drink? <laughs> Seems a bit off maybe. But actually this is super important that Jesus asks for the drink first. We can already assume. I mean, why would a woman be going to a well? She's thirsty. She needs a drink of water. But Jesus is thirsty too, and he makes the first move. Hey, will you give me a drink? You see, he is longing for union with her. But it's the kind of union, not like those Old Testament marriage stories, but the kind of union that all other earthly unions point to. The union of God and his people. And yes, this woman gets an invitation. Will you give me a drink? It's kind of like a marriage proposal in a way. And remember, God's not interested in arranged marriages. He honors the choice. But he's saying, I'm thirsty for you, woman at the well. My, my desire is for you to join this family, for your spiritual well to never run dry. And not just her, but you. And not just you, but your annoying co-worker who always has the opposite opinions from you. For your father who's agnostic and drinks too much. For your husband who just barely tolerates your faith. For your artistic cousin who has decided that crystals in the zodiac are the main way that she gets direction in life. It's for your friends who gather to cheer Mama who's in the Champions League. It's for the single mom across the hall who's hustling through her day. Jesus is thirsting for you. The Samaritan woman is kind of taken aback at this question. She's not immediately kind. She says, well, you're a Jew. And there's kind of some hostility there, because there is hostility between Jews and Samaritans. Well, you're a Jew. Why are you even, why are you even here? And he says, if you knew the gift of God, verse 10, and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She still doesn't understand what he's talking about. They go through a few misunderstandings. But notice, instead of calling him Jew next time, she calls him sir. Something in her perspective has shifted. He's starting to untangle some misunderstandings she has. Isn't that our role? Sir. Then she asks, where do you get this living water? So he answers again, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, pointing to the well. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Eternal life. That's another one of those gospel buzzwords. Perhaps most often when we think of eternal life, we think of life for a really, really, really long time, forever, quantity. But you know, eternal life in this text primarily means something about the quality of life, not only for a long, long time. It's an experience of being quenched. That's eternal life. It's intimately knowing God. If you don't leave me, check out John 17. Jesus defines eternal life as clear as he can. He says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's eternal life. Jesus said, woman, you can have that experience if you would drink this living water. 
But look where Jesus takes the conversation next. He turns to the topic of husbands. He said, go get your husband. She says, I have no husband, verse 17. He said, no, you don't. In fact, you've, you've had five, and the man you have now is not your husband. Why is Jesus taking the conversation here? He's getting at the core issue of her life, her core pain, the thing that has defined her identity to herself and to those around her. She's been divorced five times. Women back then couldn't divorce men. So five men have left her, and she's just trying to survive by hanging out with this other man. And she's thirsty through all this. Notice after this, her perspective shifts once more from Jew to Sir. Now she says, prophet. We're starting to get there. Then she brings out another barrier, right? She says, but our ancestors worshipped on this mountain and not in the place where you Jews claim that we need to worship. How does Jesus respond? She's, he's coming, she's coming up with another barrier. And he says, woman, he gently tells her the truth. He says that the Jews have received written revelation from God, and you are worshiping what you don't know. But then he, he doesn't dwell on that barrier she has. He moves again to what they have in common and what will be common for everyone. Verse 21, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Speaking of marriage, Jesus is getting at a different union. A time is coming, and, and it has now come, when the true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. The woman says, I know that Messiah called Christ will tell us everything when he comes. And he realizes, oh, this is my time. He says, I am he. In a few more verses, those of you who have your Bible open, look at verse 29. What does she say? Verse 29. What does she say? She runs off to tell the others, and she says, come see. Come see. The invitation, come see. So amazing. You see, Jesus faced with all these barriers. He finds what they have in common, water. He starts the conversation there. And instead of, how many times in, we get caught up looking at the barriers instead of looking for something we have in common? I mean, sometimes we even construct the barriers. I have a friend who is going through some difficult things um, and I felt for a while that I should pray for her, and I was praying for her, um, but I hadn't told her <laughs> that I was praying for her. And she knows that I'm a Christian, but we had not had that type of relationship at all before. And I didn't want to seem presumptuous, I didn't want to seem pushy, and you know, I really like this friend, I wanted her to still be my friend, <laughs> you know. And, but finally I did, I offered to pray for her. And you know what she said? She said, oh, I've been wanting to ask, but I didn't want to presume. I'm like, oh, sometimes the only thing more risky or awkward than you offering to pray or extending the invitation is the person on the other side having to muster the courage to do it themselves. What an act of love to spare them from the awkwardness and extend that invitation ourselves. Band, you can come up. In John 4, 34, Jesus is trying to explain some things to his disciples who don't quite understand. And Jesus says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe. Note that Jesus doesn't say, pray for the harvest. We don't need to pray for the harvest. Just open our eyes. 
And it's also not a picture of just get out there and try as hard as you can, take God where he needs to go. No, it's open your eyes to see where God is already working and join him. Who in your neighborhood, your workplace, your school, your friend group, your chess club, your gym buddies, at the playground, who is searching? Jesus, he models the conversation that gets to the heart of things. I want you to think this week, how can we engage in more spiritual conversations? What common ground can we build on? What questions can we ask? And friends, all of this must be built on a foundation of prayer. Do not forsake your prayer life. None of this is possible without it. It's in prayer that God will both quench your own thirst and open your eyes. It's in that life of prayer which remains hidden from the world, but which is the place where essential battles are lost and won. So on that note, would you stand and join me in prayer? Lord God, our Father in heaven, I thank you for this community. I thank you for this opportunity to live out the gospel together. Lord, I pray that you would release us from our fear of what other people think about us. Release us from the burden of fear and worry. Remind us that what we're doing, we do for you, an audience of one. May our relationship with you be the most important thing about us. Lord, may we be an invitational community marked with your love for each other and eyes for the lost, the broken, and the thirsty ones. God, may our own longings find their true home in you, that we would know eternal life. Church, if you have someone in your mind and on your heart who you want to pray for, I just pray that you would think of that person right now, that person who doesn't know God, but who you so desperately want to know. Think of that person. God, Lord, I pray for opportunity for authentic conversations about what we're all doing here You know the people who are on our minds. God, I pray that the scales would fall from their eyes, that they would encounter you just as the woman at the well encountered you. That our invitations to come and see would fall on curious ears, that the sleeping ones would awaken to your voice that's already calling, come home. Thank you, Lord. Let's sing, church.